Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Aaron Smith, Professor of Agricultural Economics at UC Davis. He is also the Cluster Lead of Ethics for the AI Institute for Food Systems and the Co-Director of the Center for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. His research focuses on econometrics, commodity markets, agriculture, and energy. He also runs the Substack blog Ag Data News, which gives digestible weekly articles relating to agricultural economics. Today, we talk about biofuels, environmental policy, and the future of agricultural technology and AI. Additionally, we seek to understand why egg prices soared this year and which fast food chicken sandwich is the best. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Aaron Smith. Thank you for coming on today. Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. How did you get to Davis and what got you interested in agricultural economics? So I grew up uh, on a farm in New Zealand. My uh, parents raised uh, mostly sheep, uh, although we also had some uh, uh, cropping, some weed and some barley, and my, my uncle had uh, dairy cattle. So I grew up in an agricultural environment. Uh, and then what I did is I went to college uh, and I studied economics uh, and I really got into economics and I enjoyed that and uh, uh, wanted to do economic research and in particular uh, focus on uh, econometrics. And so uh, when I looked around where I could uh, get a, earn a PhD, uh, UC San Diego was uh, uh, one of the best places in the world for people who wanted to study uh, econometrics. And so I made that my, my goal and, and went to UCSD and got a PhD. Uh, and then I started looking around, you know, where might I obtain a faculty job and this position and agricultural economics came up, and that sort of uh, uh, merged my my background with my uh, my area of expertise. They were looking for somebody who who focused in econometrics, and so uh, I was uh, lucky enough to get the job. That was two thousand and one. So I've now been here uh, on, on Davis uh, uh, on campus for twenty two years. That's great. What is econometrics? That's a very good question. So econometrics is the use of economic data uh, or statistical analysis of economic data, I would say. And so typically you have one of two objectives. Uh, either you're trying to predict something, so you're trying to figure out, you know, given what we see right now, what do we think is going to happen to the price of oil or the inflation rate? Uh, the other use of econometrics is uh, to try to tease out causal relationships. So if uh, there's some change in some particular policy, what do we think that is going to cause in terms of people's incomes or, or, or something like that? So uh, that's what econometrics is. And why is it a fruitful topic for all students to try to understand, not just econ students? So I think what we're we're in a world now where there is so much more data than uh, there used to be. Uh, we, everywhere we look, you know, our phones are collecting data. Uh, we see all kinds of data from all kinds of different sources that, that are collected, and so uh, those data are useful for us to be able to try to understand the world. And so, if you have a strong knowledge and background in statistics uh, and econometrics, then uh, I think it, it places you well uh, to be successful in uh, in in many different careers. Whether you're somebody who's going to be doing that kind of analysis. Uh, or whether you're somebody who maybe is consuming that analysis being done by others and you're understanding what's happening. Uh, I, I think in, in both cases, uh, it's very, uh, very useful uh, knowledge. Could you maybe highlight how econometrics and economic like theories and studies are not just focused on money, per se? Because I think some students might be thinking, econ, money, business, I don't care about business. Could you maybe explain some of the use cases for econometrics yeah. kind of beyond that? Yeah, so one 
one good way of thinking about that is, is I'm in a department of agricultural and resource economics. And so uh, we have a bunch of sort of 24, 25 faculty, something like that, a bunch of PhD students all doing research on topics that very few of them are focused just in on sort of the, the macroeconomics or money types of mm-hmm. topics that you might think about. So people are interested in answering questions like, uh, you know, what happens when uh, a farmers use extra fertilizer uh, and some of that fertilizer runs into waterways and creates pollution? Like how, how much extra pollution do we get? What are the health effects of that? Uh, how could we create policies that might try to mitigate uh, that type of uh, that type of outcome? So uh, the kinds of research that people do in this department is sort of all kind of different brands of questions that might come up in uh, topics related to food or agriculture or the environment mm-hmm. or uh, a lot of people work in topics uh, internationally so international development uh, context. And you helped write a textbook on econometrics, right? I did. And what are some common misconceptions of the topic? So I think students often uh, are scared of econometrics. Uh, So we have in the managerial economics major uh, that that I teach in that we run out of our department, econometrics has been a required class throughout. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it used to be that students were really scared of the topic, I think. Uh, You'd find people, even though you should really take it relatively early in your program so that you can help, that can help you understand what's happening in your later classes. I think students would defer it until as late as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of that was because historically, like a lot of economics, it was very heavily theoretical. Mm-hmm. And so you're sitting down, you're doing a bunch of math, and it's not really obvious how it connects to the real world. Uh, whereas, in fact, it's, this is a topic that has very, very direct connections to the real world. I mean, it's like measuring things that are out there in the real world and try, trying to understand them. So uh, as, as I've started to teach this class more often, I've, I've really tried to emphasize uh, not, I mean, we, we do cover the, the theory so you understand what's what's happening in, in, in the topic, but also uh, to really emphasize the use of econometrics and how uh, you can potentially use it to answer questions and how you can actually do econometric analysis rather than just sort of understand abstract uh, uh, theoretical properties of the, the analysis you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now kind of moving into some of your specific research. Yeah. Can you talk to us about corn being used as a biofuel and what you are researching on that subject? Yes. So uh, not a lot of people know maybe that 10% of essentially every gallon of gasoline in the United States is made from corn. And the main reason for that uh, is that we have this policy in the United States that requires us to use uh, certain quantities of, of biofuels uh, and, and ethanol made from corn is, an, is uh, the most prominent biofuel uh, in our fuel supply. And this, this is, there's actually a very long history here. So if you go back to the 1920s, uh, you can find these quotes from the, like Henry Ford saying, you know, this, and, and to give maybe a little context, this was after the First World War. So Europe had been sort of devastated during the First World War. It's agricultural production devastated. That production was starting to come back at this time. So you've got extra supply of agricultural products on the world stage. Prices are are now lower because of that extra production. So Americans are looking around saying, well, we're producing all this corn, prices are low, what are we going to do with it? At the same time, uh, oil uh, was, people were starting to worry that we were going to run out of oil. There were oil fields in Pennsylvania, they were looking like they were starting to run out. It's like, we're going to run out of oil, we've got this corn here, we can make it into alcohol uh, or ethanol and then use that to, to power our cars. And 
what happened soon after that is they discovered oil in Texas. And then we had like 70 years of basically just cheap oil and um, there was no one really considered using ethanol. And then for various reasons, we had this period where um, for various Clean Air Act sort of regulations that people started to use a little bit of ethanol in um, gasoline uh, through sort of the, the 90s and early 2000s. And then they passed this policy in the mid 2000s uh, called the Renewable Fuel Standard. And part of the goal of this policy was to try to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, so with the idea that, that burning ethanol would, would cause less carbon emissions than uh, gasoline. Uh, I think part of the goal also was to, you know, increase demand for crops. So that helps those who are, you know, uh, in regions where they, they grow a lot of crops. And, 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 and I think part of the concern also at the, at the time was about uh, uh, trying to reduce uh, U.S. reliance on imported gasoline. And so if you can grow more, fu more fuel at home, there's an argument that, uh, uh, that that's a, a lower risk strategy. Definitely. And do those policies that we're pushing for the idea that they cause lower emissions, do they hold up? So not really. And so one of the, the hardest things to, to measure about, um, uh, about this is so you can measure relatively easily, you know, when you put ethanol and then you burn it, how much carbon emissions uh, come out. Uh, one of the hardest parts to measure is what happens to the land that you're using mm -hmm. where you're growing the corn uh, that, that is then made into ethanol. And one of the... Uh, most important sources of, of, of carbon emissions over time has been changing land use. So there's a lot of carbon that's stored in, uh, in plants and in the soils. And so if you take land that was not being used to grow crops and you plow it up, uh, then there's a whole lot of carbon in the soil that essentially gets released into the atmosphere. And so when you say we're going to grow a bunch more corn and then we're going to convert uh, some extra land to uh, growing that corn, then you're going to generate a whole bunch of carbon emissions from that. And so trying to measure how much actual additional carbon emissions you get from, from growing corn has is, is, is been a, 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 ch a scientific challenge. Mm -hmm. So what were some of your findings when you evaluated that? Yeah, so I was part of a, a, a large team that, that looked at this and, and we were looking not just at the carbon emissions, but mm -hmm. all trying to look at all environmental uh, um, effects of growing uh, corn for ethanol. And so uh, what we found is that the just looking at the United States, uh, that the extra uh, corn that is grown uh, in order to produce the ethanol that, that, that we have uh, led to large increases in the amount of cropland in sort of the Midwest and particularly the sort of upper Great Plains states sort of into the Dakotas uh, and around that region uh, led to substantial emissions of extra carbon uh, to the point where uh, it's not even obvious that corn ethanol is cleaner than, than gasoline from a, from a carbon standpoint. And how is that data received? Uh, so... Not particularly well. I mean, I think the the corn ethanol uh, lobbying groups are, are are very powerful. They've been very successful in in Washington over the fifteen years or so since we've had the renewable fuel standard at continually uh, promoting the fuel and promoting mm -hmm. promoting their cause. And so uh, we've had uh, sort of various uh, groups have tried to issue rebuttals to uh, to our our study. Uh, and and you know you you kind of face this. Uh, um, 
this decision about like how much do you engage with these people and I think there are times when we feel like the uh, they're not really uh, sort of uh, they're well whether we feel like maybe they're a little disingenuous and so you don't mm -hmm. want to be just sort of engaging in, in this back and forth where uh, it's going to potentially go on forever and so we've 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 tried to to, to push back but um, but it's it's definitely an area where I think there's there's you know the particular interests that, that feel like they want to sort of protect that that market share of uh, of corn going into ethanol, and it's big. I mean, it, you know, about a third of all corn in the United States goes to to wow. produce ethanol, so it's it's a lot. Yeah. And what does that engagement look like when you do talk with these lobbyists? So, so one venue, I guess, where this uh, is sort of come up is the uh, Environmental Protection Agency (EPA) is the one that administers this corn ethanol program. They're required under the law to write a report every three years about what are the environmental effects of uh, this policy, and so uh, they've written one of those reports recently, and then they're required to get a group of uh, uh, reviewers to review the report and to uh, issue a review to say how you know how they think of it and so uh you know i am and various others were nominated to be one of the reviewers of the report and then industry says no don't get that guy to be a reviewer <laughs> he's sort of anti our our stuff and it turned out i was uh, a reviewer and 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 was able to to to, to weigh in on, on on that report but that, that's just sort of one uh one example of how they might uh, not be so so happy with this input do you have examples of other policies that have been implemented that have been heavily impacted by lobbyists? Yeah, I mean it's it's often it's often difficult to sort of draw the the line between mm -hmm. the lobbying and the actual uh, policy that comes into place. But I think certainly in the United States, but even in other parts of the world, that that agriculture enjoys sort of a particular favor, I think, from uh, from politics. And, and partly, I think it's because we're all sort of a little bit sort of nostalgic, romantic about food. Maybe we uh, have uh, romantic ideas about where our food comes from, or we have relatives or ancestors who, who worked on farms. And so uh, we're sort of willing to support, I mean, who doesn't want to support the farmers who are growing our food? That seems like a, a, a good idea. Uh, I think you have political structures in the US where, you know, every state has two senators, and so uh, there are a lot of states with relatively few people, but where agriculture is really important. So I think that sort of overweights the importance of agriculture in, in, in the U.S. Senate. And so, you know, with that, what you tend to get is is uh, a lot of uh, support for agriculture, where, whereas in some industries you might say, you know, if this industry is is generating some some pollution, they might be producing a great product, but they're generating some pollution, so we really need to regulate and force those firms to reduce their pollution. I think in oftentimes in agriculture, you end up with, uh, you know, farmers are producing this great fruit product, but there's creating some pollution. Let's pay them to reduce the pollution. So the, the you know, whether you tax or subsidize uh, seems to be sort of different across sectors. And how do you recommend students look at these policies critically? It seems like a lot of times you'll hear about a new policy coming out, like the new EV one, for example. Mm -hmm. And it sounds great on paper, but then when you kind of look into the back end of how that will be implemented, it gets kind of gross kind of quick. It's, yeah, it's it's really hard. Uh, and um, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's really hard to, to know just from any particular policy uh, how... Um, 
uh, you know, whether or not it's going to be good or bad. And, and so you, I think you, you want to listen to various perspectives uh, as much as you can. Uh, I think try to listen to, to, to who is giving those perspectives. And so, you know, if you're hearing perspectives from industry, I mean, so on one sense, they, they know a lot about their industry, so they've got something to say. On the other hand, they clearly are motivated to uh, say things that are going to support uh, their industry. And so, uh, and similar for, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, maybe if they're academics who are weighing in, they're, they're most likely going to be more uh, independent. Um, and if, you know, environmental groups are weighing in, well, maybe they're probably going to be emphasizing sort of the particular environmental outcomes and maybe not de-emphasizing other outcomes. So I think if you, if you, if you can hear a lot of different uh, perspectives, then that's one way and, and try to think about, uh, you know, what, how, how they're maybe the motivations of, of people who are, who are speaking, then that's one way to try to, to distill it. Yeah. It seems like another big part of your work is also in agricultural technology. Uh-huh. Could you speak some to where you see the future of agricultural technology going and how that might benefit us? Yeah. So uh, the advancements in agricultural productivity have been amazing over the last uh, uh, few decades. I mean, you know, you get five times as much corn off every field now as you did uh, in 1950. Wow. Uh, and similarly, in, in many other crops, just the amount of extra production uh, that we get is is phenomenal. And that's really important because people, uh, the number of people in the world has been growing. Uh, and, mm. and I think more than that, people are getting richer. So as you get richer, you can afford to buy uh, sort of more resource intensive food. So the main example is, you know, when you're more wealthy, uh, and we've seen this particularly in, in China over the last 20 years, then you can afford to eat more meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and meat is really sort of inefficient from an agricultural perspective because it's like if you just eat the plant, then uh, you've used the resources to grow that plant and then you eat it. But if what you're going to do instead is you're going to have the animals eat those plants, uh, which takes you know five times as much resources or depending on the animal, and then to, to make meat – then there's just a lot more production has to happen in order to get the food. But if you're richer and you can afford to, to do that, then that's what people are going to want to do. So the, we've seen this big increase in agricultural productivity. What's also true is that seems to have slowed down uh, mm-hmm. in the last 20 years. So the, the amount of sort of growth we're seeing in agricultural productivity has slowed down. And I think it's imperative uh, for that productivity to keep increasing to be able to feed the world you mm-hmm. know, as population grows, as people get richer and uh, demand more resource-intensive foods, and also to avoid bringing more land and production. Because as we talked about yeah. before, you're also making the climate problem worse if you're, if you're converting forests into cropland. So we will hear about the rainforests in Brazil, for example, being yeah. torn down to for, for, for agricultural production. So for all of those reasons, I think increased productivity is important. Um, to, to get to your question about ag tech, I think the new wave uh, of agricultural technology is is to be driven by artificial intelligence and, mm. and machine learning. Uh, I'm involved in uh, the uh, AI Institute for uh, Next Generation Food Systems, which is a research institute funded by the National Science Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, our particular institute is based at UC Davis, but we also have uh, researchers at uh, some other campuses at Berkeley, Cornell, University of Illinois. And that's that institute is a whole bunch of re- researchers who are 
doing research on various ways that uh, new technology can improve productivity in um, uh, in in the food system. So some particular examples, uh, I'm working on a project with uh, robotic weeding. Uh, mm. We're uh, working with a startup company named uh, Verdant Robotics, and what they do is they they have this this uh, uh, tool that uses computer vision to look at a field, and if it sees a weed, then it zaps it. Uh, and so uh, one of this, this example, I think, also illustrates potentially one of the promises of, of this new wave of technology is to be able to not only improve productivity, so at lower cost, to be able to produce more food, but also to reduce the environmental impact. So yeah. rather than spraying a whole bunch of spray, mm -hmm. right, you can just spray just as much uh, in the, exactly the right spot where you need it. So I think there's a lot of promise for, for these technologies as to be sort of the new uh, wave to increase productivity with with all of those those benefits that we talked about and in, in the talk of increasing productivity is that directly tied to more nutritious food so that's a, that's a good question because one thing you sort of hear a lot is you hear people say well back in the old days you know the strawberry really tasted like a strawberry and now it's yeah. kind of bland and one component of the research that people are doing in the the AI Institute is to figure out ways to make food taste better mm -hmm. uh, and so by trying to understand well what actually are the components of say a strawberry uh, and maybe what have we lost over time or just what are those components what components of the strawberry could give it the taste that you like and how can we figure out how to uh, you know change uh, the nature of the seed to restore that which we might have lost or to, to, to make it so it, 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 it tastes better so there's a lot of research going in and a lot of it is helped by you know these sort of big data machine learning type techniques to to be able to figure out how to to make food taste better yeah. and ai is obviously like a data center technology mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about how our agricultural data is today yeah so there's there's a lot of data around there in in so in the united states you know the united states department of agriculture collects huge amounts of data um and one criticism I've had is that a lot of those data are not really very well organized for people who don't know what they're looking for. Mm. So, you know, they USDA reports, you know, every year they report, you know, how much production of all these different crops happened uh, in each county. Uh, there's another agency of USDA that reports, you know, they could tell you what was the price of uh, spinach in St. Louis today. Uh, but to, to sort of extract those data out uh, and, and use them sometimes is, is very difficult. Uh, there's also another, there's a lot of satellite data. So from satellite imaging, they can tell you sort of on every little 30 meter square in the United States, what crop is being grown on that every year. So all of these data resources are useful. Uh, I would say for some of the, the, the AI technologies, then the, the data requirements even sort of uh, go above and beyond that because you really want for example, the robotic weeding, what they want to do is they want to be able to take pictures of lots and lots and lots of different weeds so that they can train their algorithms to figure out mm -hmm. this is a weed, but this is a carrot. And so, you know, spray this one, but not that one. So those data requirements are uh, increasing. And that does create, I think, potential challenges with, with privacy. So uh, another example is uh, a lot of tractors and combines now are driven by GPS. And so the GPS is recording exactly what's happening as it moves through the mm -hmm. field. And so you collect, again, huge amounts of data for what's happening at each point on the field. And 
some of that data is potentially really, really useful to be able to improve productivity. You might also wonder who owns the data. And, and if a farmer is able to, if, if those data are held by the farmer versus held by maybe some other company, that company maybe could use it against them in some way. And so there's a lot of also challenges, I think, surrounding that. Yeah. Do you see data collection becoming more personalized? So, because I'm pretty big into health and tracking my personal health data. Do you think farmers are going to start getting more personalized data for their field specifically or not just rainfall of the area, but like, okay, like you can break down, like this is my cropland, this place gets a little bit more than that one and this is how I need to adjust it and things like that. Yeah, and and a lot of that data even now already exists. Mm -hmm. So in, in principle, every yard of your field, you will know you know, how much production you got off that particular piece and what happened, how mm -hmm. much fertilizer was used, how much seed was put into it, all of those features. I think the gap at the moment is how to actually take all of that information and use it in a way that is productive. So, you know, there are companies that will sell products where farmers can can see a map, right? So you see a map, say, oh, that's cool. You know, this, this part was productive, this part wasn't. But to actually take that information and then be able to use it, I think that's the challenge of precision in agriculture. And, and I think that's a challenge that, that, that AI and machine learning probably is seeking to try to solve. Yeah. And then another aspect I'm wondering about is we get all this new technology because we're a lot of the ones inventing it, we being the U.S. Yeah. If you start focusing on the rest of the world, especially like third world countries, they have a huge environmental impact as well. When do you think, like, what do you see the timeline being of them getting the similar technologies that we're just starting to get and implementing them to reduce environmental impact? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I'm optimistic about that. I mm -hmm. think we've seen with, say, cell phones, the, a lot of places that didn't have the telecommunications infrastructure that we may have had in the United States over the latter part of the 20th century uh, were able to get cell phone infrastructure and just sort of leapfrogged uh, mm -hmm. that, that stage. And so I'm, I'm optimistic that the kinds of technologies that might be developed in some parts of the world, maybe the more wealthy parts of the world, can mm -hmm. be spread relatively easily to, to other places. Uh, so, uh, so I'm optimistic about that, but I think there's, there's, there's challenges there too. For sure. And could you talk a little bit about, we talked about like the value of data. Is there a way that the data from these farms could be used to give financial benefits to the farmers even after automation takes place and they might not have the actual use for labor? I think, so one of the questions that that I'm focused on in my work with the AI Institute is, is the ethical challenges of AI. Uh, and, and, and ethics is a term that comes up a lot when people mm. talk about new AI technologies, but a, a lot of times it's people mean different things by it or it's not, they're not really sure exactly what it means. From my perspective in, in agriculture, uh, thinking about ethics, I think, is mostly about who are the winners and who are the losers and who decides who might be the winners and the losers. And so some of those decisions are going to be made by who owns things. So if you own the data, then probably you're in a position to be able to profit from it in ways where, you know, if it's the, the provider of the, the particular service owns the data, then, then, then maybe they are in a position to extract those benefits. If you're sort of agricultural laborer, then you might be in a position where some other technology comes in and is able to to do the job uh, more cheaply than, than you could and, and, and you lose that job. And so, so I think those are also big challenges. And so we'll see 
transition, and we've in fact seen that transition over 100 years. There's, there's, it used to be that 50% of people worked in agriculture, and mm -hmm. now in the United States, it's about one or two. Uh, and yeah. so, so what happened? And yet, we don't have mass unemployment. So, on a macro scale, you would say people will find other things to do as AI changes the way different jobs work. Uh, but I think that statement uh, misses the people who kind of get caught in the transition. And so if you've spent a big chunk of your life working, say, as an agricultural laborer, and then some machinery comes and is able to take over that job, then a lot of times for those people in those communities where, where those people live, it's it's difficult to figure out what happens next. And we've seen that in the United States in a different context as manufacturing has moved out of a lot of places in the Midwest, that there are a lot of communities there, I think, that are really struggling and, and, and people who sort of get caught in, in the shuffle. So that's an important challenge for, for society to figure out is, is, is how to deal with that. Where do you think data ownership will fall with the farmers and the people who are allowing the companies to come in and collect it or the companies providing the technology to collect it? So I think if we sit back and just let things happen, that, that prior experience will tell us that it's the companies providing the service that will collect data and will set things up so that, that they have control. I think you see that with your data on mm -hmm. uh, Instagram or, or whatever particular app you're using. It's, 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 it's like you don't, you don't have control over that. Uh, yeah. And so I think that's where we're likely to go. Uh, it's not obvious to me that's where we, we should go. And so that's one of the, the many challenges for, for figuring out, you know, how the, these technologies should work is that it's moving so fast and, uh, uh, and, and, and it's really hard to think about what the, the right kinds of regulations are. Because on the one hand, you say, there's great promise here. We should give it the opportunity to, to, to run. Uh, on the other hand, you say uh, there, we might end up in some place where we have these unintended consequences. And so we, we want to we figure out how to rein it in. And, and I think those are just really difficult questions. I think anybody who, who pretends that they're not, I yeah. think, is, is, is uh, uh, not quite being honest. Definitely. We talked earlier about incentives and making farmers pay if they have emissions. Could you talk a little bit about the potential benefits of capturing certain emissions like methane and how that might prove to be more beneficial than these negative incentives? Yeah, so methane's an interesting example. So methane is uh, a greenhouse gas that is emitted uh, from agricultural activity in large part, especially from livestock. Mm -hmm. So uh, mostly from cattle. So cattle through uh, enteric fermentation, which is burping, uh, uh, emit methane. And also uh, cattle manure, when it's when it's uh, sort of processed into lagoons and then microbes feed off of it and they give off methane as well. And so, so that's a greenhouse gas that, that uh, as we look to try to mitigate climate change, reducing those emissions is, is an important challenge. And the main way in California that that's being done at the moment is to say, well, what we can do is we can capture the methane at uh, dairy farms, for example, and prevent it from being from escaping into the atmosphere. And then, in fact, we can take that methane and we can use it as uh, transportation fuel in place of natural gas. So like the Amazon trucks that are driving around powered by natural gas, uh, they can be powered by gas coming from a dairy farm rather than from mm -hmm. fossil gas being pulled out of the uh, out of the ground. Wow. If you if you just look at the, the the math of the potential damages from climate, the the big benefit to that gas is mostly 
that's preventing it from being emitted um, mm -hmm. uh, rather than you know the value of replacing the, the fossil gas. And the problem is it's really expensive. So there's anaerobic digesters, which are the basically a, a cover that you put on a um, uh, on a manure lagoon to capture the methane. Uh, they're much more expensive than the, what the gas is actually worth in the market. Yeah. You know, so 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 what you have to figure out is, is who's going to pay for that, right? So who's going to pay to capture this gas, which is really damaging to the climate, uh, but is not really that valuable to use as transportation fuel. And, and what the way California works at the moment is that that gas is basically paid for sort of through the, the low carbon fuel standard. So this is transportation fuel greenhouse gas policy where basically users of gasoline and diesel are sort of paying, uh, to, to be able to capture that methane, that means that that biogas companies and farmers that are providing that that methane are, are, are getting those benefits. And so, to, to answer the other part of your question, one thing you could imagine is you could imagine a regulation where you say that farmers, dairy farmers, are creating this greenhouse gas emissions by having these cows that put this manure that then creates methane. So we need to make them pay for putting on the, the biodigester. And if the state of California does that, one worry would be that these dairy farmers will say, well, it's too expensive to operate in California. We're going to move to Arizona and we're going to operate there where we don't have to do this. And so you do have to be careful when you implement a policy that imposes a cost in one place that you're not just moving the emissions somewhere else so you haven't really uh, gained anything. And I think that's the argument that people would use for this policy that we have uh, in the state right now where you're essentially paying uh, farmers or the biogas companies that are that are installing these things to, uh, to reduce the emissions. Do you think positive incentives versus negative incentives are more effective? So I'll say two things there. I think generally the... I would say the negative incentives are more effective economically, so mm -hmm. Im imposing a tax. Uh, they're also very difficult to implement politically. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and, and I think that's an, an answer that probably lots of economists would give, you know, talking about various kinds of pollution or, or climate change, that what we want to do is we want to be able to uh, have some way to cap or to tax the, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the emissions and then um, – uh, rather than some other plan to try to subsidize. And, 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 and part of it is that the positive incentives, sometimes you end up in uh, uh, sort of with unanticipated consequences where, you know, you offer an incentive to buy an electric car and then what do electric car companies do? Well, they just raise the price so that consumers end up paying the same amount but yeah. they pocket the subsidy, right? So you, you worry about those kinds of outcomes. Yeah. The part that I think is kind of like a positive incentive that we probably uh, have underplayed in the last 10 or 20 years is is the role of research and development. So mm. I think government has in the past and can continue to play a huge role in funding of research and development yeah. of new technologies. And, and we've done a lot of that, and I think we can do a lot more of that. Uh, and so that's, I think, one role where, where, where positive incentives can, can be really helpful. We started talking about livestock a little bit just yeah. now could you shed some light to the difference between animal agriculture and plant agriculture both economically and environmentally yeah so they're they're linked uh because the the animals eat the plants that are grown on the plant agriculture and so that's 
the I'd say the the main connection between them. And you know, as we grow animal agriculture, we need to grow plant agriculture even more to grow food for for animals to animals to eat. The uh, pollution effects uh, or environmental effects are, are are linked as well. So. You can, in principle, take manure from livestock and you can use it as, as fertilizer on, on fields and so re- recycling in, in that way. Uh, to the extent that you're not doing that, then, then the, that the nutrient pollution is, is going into, into waterways, whether it's coming from uh, the animal manure or from the synthetic fertilizer that you're, 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 putting, you're putting on crops. As we look towards creating a more sustainable agricultural environment, what do you think are going to be the, the key drivers of that in that will it be technology really advancing production will it be creating a system where all these animal farmers need to be sending their manure to the plant farmers to fertilize so we are getting away from synthetic fertilizer where do you like we talked about ai and your work there where do you see like the major drivers of sustainable agriculture like coming from I think technology can play a huge role. Mm-hmm. So uh, nitrogen pollution is one useful example where you know farmers put uh, nitrogen fertilizer on crops, which is which is really helpful for helping them to, to grow more. And, mm-hmm. and a huge component of the increased productivity that we've seen over time is from has been from from nitrogen fertilizer. The problem is that the plants don't take up all of the fertilizer that you put that you put mm-hmm. there because maybe you didn't put it quite in the right location for the plant to be able to find it or maybe because water or rain comes and it washes some of it away and so what you end up with is that nitrogen ends up in waterways and so uh, you end up sort of with algae feeding on that and so that's when you get these green lakes where um, algae have been feeding on the uh, um, uh, on the on the nitrogen or or if you look down in, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico now there's a large area sort of the size of a small state that is pretty much dead Uh, and it's dead because of nitrogen that's come from down the mississippi into into the gulf a lot of that from agriculture and again you know sort of microbes or and little things i'm not i'm economist scientist but you know they 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 eat everything that's there and then basically the whole area just just dies so it's just dead and so that problem hasn't really improved for 30 years in spite of a lot of efforts to try to figure out how can we regulate or how mm-hmm. can we do all kinds of things differently. And so I'm, I'm optimistic that, uh, that, that technologies can um, potentially uh, help mitigate those environmental damages because we can you know, save producers money by not having to use as much, say, fertilizer in this example, because you're going to apply it, be able to apply it very precisely at exactly the location where uh, it's needed. And there are some cases where that kind of happens already, like almonds in California is one example where, you know, typically it's applied right sort of at the root of mm-hmm. the plant and, and potentially uh, you don't, you're not applying it excessively. I say potentially because I haven't measured that, but yeah. that's at least the promise. Yeah, that makes sense. Looking at agriculture in the U.S., there's players like Monsanto that have a bad rep, you could yeah. say, and are known to be rather aggressive to smaller farmers. How do we implement these technologies in a way that doesn't butt out the little man? It's a, it's a good question. So um, over time, what we've seen is that farm size has increased, and and a large part of that has been Again, technology. When you when you get a tractor, then you're gonna have to have a farm that's sort of a 
big enough to actually make it worthwhile owning a whole tractor, whereas mm-hmm. before you just had a couple of horses. And so over time, what we've seen is that the size of farms has has gotten bigger. And, you know, I, I take this perspective, even though there's something I think that's sort of some maybe nostalgic uh, uh, about small farms i don't take the perspective that that small is necessarily better than 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 big when we're talking about the size of of farms and so as as farms have gotten bigger uh you can argue that uh you know uh and i guess it's not obvious that that you know, a big farm versus a small farm is going to be sort of more environmentally sensitive either. What is true in agriculture is that even though farms have gotten much bigger, there are still thousands of farmers in the United States. Uh, and if you look at the very other end of the market, there's millions of consumers in the United States. And what's in between those is a bunch of big companies. So we have a bunch of big retailers. We've got Costco and Walmart and Safeway yeah. uh, and maybe a few others. You've got big food processing firms. You've got big, uh, you know, uh, biotech kind of firms like uh, uh, like you mentioned. And so so it is certainly true. And I think this is true throughout the rest of the economy. I'm not sure how specific it is to agriculture, but you definitely have big companies with a lot of power sort of sitting in the middle between uh, a large number of producers and a large number of consumers, and so mm-hmm. at the very least, they you know ha- they can use that 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 power to be, to be able to increase profits. They also increase the efficiency of the system. Yeah. Uh, so so I think that needs to be accounted for when you're trying to analyze that. But but uh, it certainly means that there there are going to be lots of cases. I think where where large uh, large intermediaries are 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 leading to sort of worse outcomes for consumers or for producers. Yeah, we briefly talked about electric electric vehicle policies yeah have you done research on the implementation especially california mandating electric vehicle like what it's 2030 all new cars have to be electric and yeah 2035 2035 yeah so is our electric grid ready for that will it work economically for everyone does that put certain classes of people at a disadvantage have you looked at the economic impact a little bit. So what is true is that, that, that people are thinking about that. Uh, so uh, the, the grid is, uh, it's a, so peop- some people are thinking about the, the emissions intensity of vehicles and lo- looking towards increasing of uh, uh, electric vehicles. Others are looking at, at the grid and how to continue to, to decarbonize the grid. Uh, so is the, is the grid ready for it now? No. Um, is the grid going to be ready for it by 2035? Uh, maybe, uh, and 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 but I think there's 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 people working on this, right? So, yeah. so and what we've seen over time is is dramatic decreases in the cost of solar, dramatic decreases in um, uh, battery costs, which is extremely important because the sun only shines in certain parts of the day, and so you have to be able to capture that electricity. And so, uh, I think uh, the grid stuff is an area where I'm not really an yeah. expert but I yeah. think that's a place that probably needs a lot of investment. Uh, and um, I, I think it's also true that, uh, you know, it's probably going to be really expensive to sort of get all the way to 100%. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's usually not 
uh, a good policy to have like sort of either zero or 100% be yeah. your goal because sometimes it can be really expensive to get that last little bit. Yeah. With a policy like this, as I understand it so far, there'll probably be cars coming in from other states as well. So, yeah. so, so in that sense, there's a little bit of a safety valve. Um, but uh, I think it's also true that lots of auto companies are at least making promises about how they're going to uh, be ramping up uh, electric vehicle and if anything, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, given the growth rates we've seen in the last few years, that uh, uh, that we end up maybe we don't hit 100 percent because that may not be a good idea, but that but that we ramp up uh, maybe more quickly than people are anticipating. Definitely. Yeah. And another kind of broad topic we've seen in the news recently that China and Saudi Arabia are talking about switching the pricing for oil exports uh -huh. to the Chinese yuan. Could you talk about the? impact that would have as switching the US dollar as the world reserve currency? Yeah, so I think there's a, a couple of things there. The, the first is that when, when you're making international transactions, you face some kind of currency risk and so if i'm going to you know buy something from from uh, a different country and i'm going to pay us dollars then you know the people in that country are going to convert those dollars into whatever their local currency is and so if the if that conversion rate changes then then they're kind of facing that risk and so part of i think what might be happening between russia and china is just who, divvying up who's going to bear the exchange rate risk, and China saying, "Well, you have to, uh, you have to sell us the oil in, in, in Chinese yuan," is another way of saying that uh, you know China's not going to be taking the currency risk versus uh, Russia uh, having to absorb that risk. the The broader question of uh, of reserve currencies is, you know, the United States does benefit from the fact that everyone likes to hold dollars as kind yeah. of the reserve currency and the United States benefits because that means that y the US can borrow at lower rates. And so to the extent that uh, that other currencies became more uh, 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 people became more willing to hold those rather than hold holding US dollars, then that would increase borrowing costs for the United States. Yeah. yeah. And what impact would that have? Like, could you just talk a little bit about the role of borrowing, I guess, in the economy? Yeah, so everyone talks about uh, the government deficit. We're coming up to this period now where uh, in Congress they're talking about the increasing the debt ceiling, so basically as a way of allowing the U.S. to, be able to continue to borrow more money to, to finance spending. And over the last 20 years or so, the U.S. has been able to borrow money really, really cheaply, uh, mainly because people want to hold U.S. dollars. And so uh, if the U.S. has to start paying higher interest on uh, its its borrowings, then that affects the, uh, the budget uh, directly. Um, and maybe that leads to inflation. Maybe that leads to other things. Uh, I probably shouldn't talk too much. My yeah. macroeconomics colleagues will, will, <laughs> will uh, object. But but that's that's basically what you, you'd expect. Yeah. Now... One last question about some of your research. Yeah. Could you talk to us about the your economic research on your favorite chicken sandwich? Yes, this is very important research uh, that uh, uh, that I did. So my uh, my daughter and I went on this mission. Uh, this was uh, a couple of years ago, and it was an exercise we did for my um, uh, blog that I write on, on, on Substack, uh, Ag Data News. And so what we did is we decided that uh, given that uh, – uh, chicken has become uh, even bigger than beef uh, in, in sales for fast food restaurants, given that there was a lot of hype uh, about uh, you know, Popeye's chicken sandwich, Chick-fil-A, these kind of wars between, you know, whose yeah. who's was the best. So we decided to do uh, a taste test. Uh, we couldn't do it blindly because 
you can't do it yeah. blindly. <laughs> uh, so what we did is we we drove around to uh, five different outlets. So we had uh, uh, Popeyes, uh, Chick Fil A, KFC, McDonald's, and. Wendy's, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. I did do some updates later where I, I did Canes. I did a couple of others, <laughs> but but for the main article, it was those five. We had a rubric, uh, and we so we went through and rated all of these sandwiches on uh, different uh, different uh, scales. And at the end of it, um, my daughter uh, was convinced that Chick Fil A was the best, uh, and I uh, liked the KFC sandwich the best. And and one of the conclusions from that, I think, is that. Uh, uh, related to what I talked about earlier with food being something that we sort of are a little bit romantic and nostalgic about, uh, my daughter has always liked Chick-fil-A. I think that has uh, happy memories for her. Uh, when I was a kid growing up in New Zealand, uh, the first American fast food chain that came to New Zealand was KFC uh, before we had McDonald's or, or Burger King. And so I think that kind of holds a special memory. And so so I was probably predisposed to already like the KFC. Yeah. She was predisposed to already like the Chick-fil-A. So that's where uh, we ended up. But uh, yeah. yeah. And then one more question related to the Substack. Yeah. A lot of college students like to budget and uh-huh. are very conscious with their groceries. Could you talk about why egg prices have been so high recently? Yes, I can. And so the the very the short answer is is bird flu. And so in uh in the United States back in uh about a year ago, so in sort of the late spring of 2022, there were uh, was an outbreak of, of bird flu which meant that a lot of uh, of of chickens had to be uh, put down, so that reduces the available supply of eggs mm. and and that essentially is the entire story. So with the reduced availability of eggs, then that's going to raise the price because you need to raise the price to, to convince people to, to buy less. And so uh, what, one thing that's interesting about that that I, that I did write about on my, on my Substack is, is in California, uh, we passed uh, several years ago uh, a proposition to um, move away from uh, caged egg production, and so that uh, uh, all eggs that were sold in the state would have to be uh, produced in cage-free technologies where the, the chickens have a little bit more space, uh, those eggs are more expensive. And so uh, one question is, um, is whether uh, that regulation has increased the price of eggs, which it has increased at some. Uh, it did seem like sort of in the first half of this year that maybe egg prices in California took a little bit longer to come back down uh, than in other places. And that, that, that may reflect the fact that some uh, cage-free systems were maybe a little more hard hit by the, the bird flu than others. And so, you know, we will be paying a little more uh, for eggs in California than in other states because of this regulation. But it certainly looks like other states are moving in the same direction. Of And so my, my guess is that over time we'll see a change in the way eggs are produced and we'll have to pay a little more for eggs and the and the, the chickens will have a little more space in their, their cages. Is there any guess to why cage-free systems were spreading the bird flu more? Because that almost seems like the opposite of what you would expect. So I don't think... I don't think the systems would have been resp- – it's probably randomness because most okay. – my understanding is that most of the bird flus came from connections with wildlife, wild birds. Oh, so okay. wild birds yeah. were brought the, uh, the infection in. And once they find it in the facility, then I think all chickens go. So um, – uh, it, it is true generally that cage-free systems that disease does spread more because the birds interact with each other more. Oh. Uh, whereas if they're in their sort of isolated cage, uh, then they don't interact with others more. And so they, it tends to be less disease. Okay. So. Yeah. 
And could you talk a little bit more about your Substack and what you're trying to do with that blog and how you're getting ag news out beyond research? Yeah. So I started this about three years ago. Um, and my initial goal when I started this was to be able to, to be able to just communicate about, uh, uh, agriculture and and what was going on in, in in agriculture and to maybe sort of help people to be a little bit more literate about the agriculture and food system uh, also to to highlight some of the data resources that I posted on, on my website where people can go and and, and, and see for themselves uh, different sort of aspects of uh, of global agricultural data over time the other thing that I've, I've started doing is to uh, use it as a way to comment on various uh, sort of public policy issues or big events that are happening. So when, for example, Russia invades Ukraine, how is that going to affect uh, uh, food prices? So I've written about that. I've written about, as we talked about, chicken sandwiches, and we've done a couple of other food experiments like that as well. I've written about eggs. Uh, I I started doing it every week for the first couple of years. Um, uh, in the last year or so, it's been a little bit less frequent than that just because I've been busy with a lot of other stuff. Uh, I have my PhD students in my uh, graduate class, uh, each, each write a blog as an assignment. So in the fall, you, you'll see some assignments uh, or some, some articles from, uh, from graduate students as well. Yeah. And then as we sign off here, do you have any advice for students, whether it be how to better prepare themselves to be more familiar with statistics and modeling or how they can get involved with the future of food systems? I think one piece of advice is to uh, try to find something to get interested in. So, uh, so look around. And, and one way you can do that is, is by talking to your instructors and your TAs. I think there's a perception, especially at a big college like UC Davis, where we may have classes where we have 150 or 200 people that, you know, as a professor, we don't really get to know all the students because you can't get to know that many people. Mm -hmm. uh, but often you get to know very, very few students because it, be it becomes, it can become somewhat impersonal and students just don't uh, come to see you. So, so I definitely encourage students Go meet uh, your professor, uh, your TAs in office hours and talk to them, ask them about what they do, uh, because you'll never have any trouble getting people to talk about the, the research yeah. that they do. Uh, you'll, you'll probably be wanting them to, to shut up, maybe show up like 10 minutes before <laughs> the end of office hours so they don't talk too much. But, but just use that as an opportunity to, to find out what people are doing and to, uh, to see things that might, you might actually get interested in and that might, that might grab you and some things won't and, and, and some things will and, and sometimes that might lead to opportunities to get involved in research projects yourself uh, sometimes that might at least lead to a good letter for graduate school but, but yeah. so I, I, I encourage that I think we, we like it when we get to meet students a little bit mm -hmm. uh, and, and it becomes a little bit more personal thank you so thank much you for coming well. right. you're welcome thanks guys to continue your learning go to our website discoveringacademia.com there you'll find the show notes resources mentioned ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.